It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. President Vladimir Zelensky urged British MPs to do more to help the Ukrainian war in a historic address at the House of Commons this week that channeled Sir Winston Churchill. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We will fight in the forests, in the fields, on the shores, in the streets. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be examining Britain's response to the war in Ukraine and ask, is it doing enough? Is the UK welcoming enough refugees? Are we sanctioning enough oligarchs and moving quickly to stem their influence in London? Political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will explore with our chief political commentator, Robert Shrimsley. And later, we'll dive into rising concerns about cost of living in the UK and the crisis that will be heightened by the war in Ukraine. Is Britain ready to transition away from Russian energy supplies and what will replace them? And will the Treasury be forced to do more to protect consumers from fuel poverty? Chief political correspondent Jim Picard will discuss with economics editor Chris Giles. Thank you all very much for coming on the pod. The war in Ukraine has entered its third week, with no sign of Russia's bombing campaign of major cities letting up. The humanitarian disaster is growing, with millions of Ukrainians displaced and seeking shelter elsewhere in Europe. The EU's response has been to waive all visa requirements and allow Ukrainians to stay for an indefinite period. But the UK has been lagging behind, with bureaucratic checks meaning barely 1,000 visas have been issued since the war began, compared to what is thought to be a tide of 2 million refugees fleeing Ukraine. Yet despite privately expressing frustration at the situation, Prime Minister Boris Johnson publicly defended his government's record. I think that the UK has got uh, an outstanding record of uh, settling people from vulnerable, uh, vulnerable people fleeing from uh, war zones. I think we've done more uh, since 2015 to settle uh, vulnerable people in any other country. Laura Hughes, welcome back to the pod. Let's start with this issue of refugees. Presently, there are just two routes for Ukrainians to come to the UK. One is family reunification and the other is being sponsored by a business. Why is there all so much paperwork involved with it? There has been a lot of criticism about the UK system and how bureaucratic it has been. If you speak to people working in the Home Office, they're incredibly defensive about this. They're arguing that staff are working 15-hour days because they've got to create these whole new systems from scratch and that the situation is incredibly fast-paced and, and moving all the time. But the fundamental problem has been that the UK has required until a, a very last minute U-turn, anybody seeking refuge here and applying for a visa because they have family already living in the UK to physically go to a site 
and apply for that visa. And that is what has led to these huge bottlenecks at these centres. Lots of confusion about where these centres even are. The Home Office weren't publicly announcing it. People had to be referred. And I think that is why we've seen amongst a lot of pressure on the government, this decision to make applications online, because that will, of course, speed things up. You can do it on your phone, on your computer, if you have a passport, whereas before it was a, it was a lot harder to even get a visa, which is why we have been so much slower than other countries. You've been letting people in and sorting these things out later. Well, Robert Trimsley, this brings us to our old friend in Whitehall, the Home Office, which very famously was described by John Reed, the then Home Secretary in 2006, as not fit for purpose. Now, is this the Home Office struggling with those systems Laura was talking about? Is there a political element here about not just doing what the EU is just to throw open the doors and allow any Ukrainians to come without a visa? How do you read the situation? I think it's all of those things. I think the most generous interpretation you can put on what's happened is that there is always a lag between the government announcing things very quickly to show that we're doing the right thing and the amount of time it takes the machine to limber up, especially if that means moving in any direction that they're not used to moving. And as Laura indicated, that a new process, doing things like differently. I was talking to a minister the other day who said, the thing you have to understand about the Home Office is it's the department that says no. Almost, on almost every issue, it's the department that says, no, you can't do this, we can't do that. And people get stuck into a process. So, you know, a minister will say, we've got to do this. The word gets back through the machine. But then, oh, well, you've got to do this, a minister, because this has happened. And you've got to remember the security implications. And the other thing about the Home Office, of course, is that any decision you get wrong can have very big and bad implications. So it's very easy to be defensive. It's very easy to be nervous. Very easy to want to do belt and braces. So between officialdom and ministers, it's very easy for things to start slowing down. And I think... That plus perhaps a degree at the very, very top of government that isn't that exercised about the number of refugees that come to Britain. We don't want to look bad, but wouldn't necessarily be terribly unhappy if they went elsewhere. I think a combination of those things meant that it started slow, it got worse, then they begin to panic, they start announcing things that we're doing, but then it turns out that we're not quite doing them because we're not quite ready and we haven't got the processes in place. So, And then it just snowballs and they begin to panic and start spraying out announcements all of which then catch other officials by surprise. So it's a combination of all of these things put together, I think. Well, there is obviously concern about the bureaucracy and the Home Secretary Pretty Patel did announce that the process for applying for those family reunification visas would be simplified. From Tuesday, I can announce that Ukrainians with passports will no longer need to go to a visa application centre to give their biometrics before they come to the UK. Instead, once their application has been considered and appropriate checks completed, they will receive direct notification that they are eligible for the scheme and can come to the UK. Well, Lord, this was welcomed by Labour, the SNP, Nicholas Sturgeon, praised the simplification and Conservative MPs, but there's still that sense the government is still not going quite far enough. And there's sort of competing pressures, as Robert mentioned, there is one eye on domestic policies, there's one eye on the dysfunction within Whitehall. But then it comes from the other side as well, the Spectator magazine, which is an influential right-wing publication, which Boris Johnson used to edit, did a very critical cover and very critical cover feature this week about the bureaucracy behind this and essentially saying the UK has got it wrong. There genuinely is a belief, and Boris Johnson himself actually made this point in Prime Minister's questions, 
there are some in government who genuinely believe that Putin could seek to exploit a refugee crisis and use it to basically sneak bad actors into the UK. And Putin's guys could supposedly come here and and wreak chaos. That is something that the Prime Minister is apparently concerned about. And that is why the UK is not taking the position of just removing all checks because there is a genuine belief that the wrong sorts of people could exploit this crisis. But at the same time, when you when you just compare it, the difference in approach is, I think, what has been so damning for this government. And the fact that you've seen the likes of Julian Smith, a former Tory cabinet minister, standing up in the House of Commons and urging the, this government to take a more humane approach and to completely change the tone of its policy is a reflection of this sort of bureaucratic nightmare that Ukrainians fleeing war are facing. And aside from this, we also have to remember that a lot of of people fleeing won't actually have passports. And so we're still going to have to use these kind of UK application centres. But this is a huge undertaking. And I think there has been a realisation this week. It's played out very, very badly with the public. But Robert touched on this point too. There is a culture in the Home Office of finding ways to keep people out of this country. That sort of has been the tone of the Home Office, uh, the Home Office under Priti Patel. So you're trying to go against the grain here. And I think it's just played out so, so badly. They've had to U-turn and it's all just looked really, really messy. Well, Robert, there is something that is going to change that early next week we expected a new humanitarian visa route that Michael Gove's department, the Ministry for Leveling Up and Communities and Local Government, has been putting together. But again, there's no real indication the UK is going to get rid of visas entirely. It's still going to require some kind of process to get there. And I imagine that that's a sort of political and a practical calculation. I mean, I think, you know, although there is obviously quite a substantial difference, the UK requiring visas and Many countries in, in, in the EU not, partly because obviously there is Schengen travel from Ukraine um, that has been made available to them. So once you're in, you're in. But it's also just a question of holding the numbers, controlling them. If you can be seen to be doing the right thing and basically attempt to do the right thing, but just at a little less pace, that does control the numbers a bit more. I mean, I have to say, the one thing that's bothered me in the last couple of days is the usual conservatives and conservative media outriders rounding on the Home Office. I've seen articles about the blob. You know, every time there's a political problem in government now, they, they turn on a department, with the Department of Health during the pandemic, and now it's the Home Office. And you have to, at some point, say, look, you've been in power in various manifestations now for 12 years. The Prime Minister has been Prime Minister for nearly three years. It's two years since Priti Patel sacked the last Permanent Secretary at the Home Office. At some point, the actual Conservative government has to own what's going on in its own machine. And some of this is also not helped by the years of austerity, which slimmed down and uh, and cut back a lot of um, mechanisms. But the fact is, they have to own this crisis they have to step up and force the issues through. And I think what you're seeing with Michael Gove is an attempt to open another channel and cut through some of the mechanisms to things happen faster. Now, Laura, the other area where the UK has been criticised for being a bit too slow is sanctions, particularly those big oligarchs who have significant assets and interests in the UK. And we saw another wave of those sanctions announced on Thursday, crucially with Roman Abranovich, the owner of Chelsea Football Club. So his assets have been frozen. And Chelsea has gone into this very peculiar situation where it has been frozen, but games can still continue. But there's lots of things it can't do. He can't sell the club without the government's approval. 
removal. Obviously, this is something that people have been calling for for a long time. Why is it taking this long? Is it due to legislation, people pointing the finger towards Lord Panic and an amendment that was passed in terms of sanctions? Is it just the legal complexity? Is it lawyers? Or again, is it just Whitehall being gummed up? This really does depend on who you speak to. And I have been desperately trying to get to the bottom of why it is the UK to date has sanctioned 18 oligarchs and the EU and the US have been able to name a lot more. And it does feel as though it is a combination of factors, one of which is our laws did change when we left the European Union. And those inside government argue that the threshold required to prove that somebody has links to Putin and and basically deserves to be sanctioned is quite high. And we have a legal system in this country that allows anyone accused of such things to appeal it in the high court. And the government has been really quite nervous about facing huge, huge legal battles. Everything has moved quite slowly. There haven't been enough people working on this who necessarily have the expertise. That's what people working inside the Foreign Office have been saying to me. Liz Truss has been looking at Abramovich for a number of weeks. There were seven oligarchs named on Thursday. And my understanding is that those names have been around for for quite a long time. And the sanctions task force, the government lawyers were instructed to work night and day to build really strong cases so the government could do this. And it was only very, very late on Wednesday night, the early hours of Thursday morning, that actually this was all signed off. And with Abramovich in particular, that case, there was a lot of back and forth about what this would mean for Chelsea Football Club, an awareness that the public might not react too well to, to the football club being shut down. And and so the government had to desperately work out a way to try and keep the club operating. And this is all incredibly complex, but we are going to see the law changed potentially as soon as Monday that will make everything a lot easier. It will put a cap on any legal costs the government could incur in court. And it will also enable us to take lists of oligarchs sanctioned by other countries and adopt them ourselves. Yes, Robert, we've got this new piece of legislation, the Economic Crime Bill. There's laws that it's going to hand the government much more sweeping powers to deal with sanctioning individuals here. And I saw that Chris Philp, the government minister, was on the, the radio on Friday morning and he was saying, well, they have very expensive lawyers. So you can see why there's frustration from the government when other countries like the US and the EU have moved faster. Because, of course, one argument that was made about Brexit many years ago was we'd be able to have our own sanctions regime. We could move faster or slow or do whatever we want outside the block. I can see why this bill is being pushed through and Johnson wants to go quicker on this because he had some very lofty rhetoric very early on in this crisis of being at the absolute forefront of the sanctions regime and slapping down on bad Russian money within London. Yet the reality has been an awful lot slower. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I'm feeling very contrarian about this whole issue. For one thing, I'm always incredibly nervous when complex pieces of legislation are rushed through Parliament. That always ends badly with stuff being missed. Secondly, although, um, as Laura rightly says, you know, there's stuff in this crime, in the Economic Crime Bill which will make it easier now, this bill fundamentally is about the future and the next bunch of people we need to sanction and the next bunch of things we need to do. So it does still need to ro- be robust. On the specifics of this, I have to say, there are two things that struck me. One is the, the, the seven oligarchs who were added to the list towards the end of this week. These were not people who were hiding under the bushes. These are some very well-known names, not just Abramovich, you know, but Igor Session and Alexei Miller, the heads of Rosneft and Gazprom. It's also true that anybody 
with any close links to the Putin regime will have known what was coming down the track and will have moved money out. And it's not, by the way, a great sanction on Putin. He doesn't mind if oligarchs have to move their money out of the UK to somewhere else. So, you know, it, it's a bit odd to understand why the government is as tremulous as this. And also, frankly, you know, if there's one institution which can withstand expensive lawyers, it's the government. It has the money to spend. It is worth saying that there are good reasons why the government should not simply just be able to come in and take your money without passing a certain threshold of proof. And although these oligarchs, you think there ought to have been that threshold in place, it's not necessarily wrong that people should be able to stop the government seizing their assets without some evidence. And finally, Laura, obviously there's been these issues with the UK's response, but we should remember that the UK has been widely praised by the president of Ukraine, but also people in Ukraine as well, for its supply of weapons to help that fight against Russia. And there was a very striking Sky News clip where Petro Poroshenko, the former president of Ukraine, was stopped by a reporter and he's fighting on the streets and said, you know, do you think the UK is doing enough? And he just simply said, Ukraine has no better friend than the UK. We've supplied all these weapons. They're doing everything well. And, he, and Poroshenko who also praised Boris Johnson personally for his courage there. And we heard that clip at the beginning of the segment. So even though there are some things that's getting wrong at home, there are other things that are going quite well. Yes, it, it's actually quite notable how many times Boris Johnson has held calls with Zelensky. It almost feels like it's every other day that the two are having conversations. And we heard from Ben Wallace this week in the House of Commons about the number of anti-tank missiles that we've been sending to the Ukrainians and the fact that we will continue to ratchet up our response in terms both of kind of weaponry, but humanitarian aid. And it's a very different picture when you compare the, the criticism around the government's response to refugees fleeing the crisis and the support that has been given to Ukrainian forces on the ground actually fighting the Russians it is worth providing sort of some praise, I think, where it's due. The UK has actually sort of stepped up and has been part of, of conversations about broader sanctions. And, and again, domestically, where we've been criticised for being too slow on the larger scale when it's come to, to banning Russia from things like SWIFT, actually, we have been a leading voice. So it is interesting comparing the, the two approaches. Law and Robert, thank you very much. The cost of living crisis has been a top concern for the Johnson government ever since inflation began to spiral in 2021, following the end of the coronavirus pandemic. But the war in Ukraine and the disruption of the global economy is set to make it worse. The most acute area is energy prices, especially following the UK and US's announcement this week they would end the use of Russian oil. Kwasi Kwarteng, the business secretary, insisted the UK's energy security was strong and it would be able to find its supplies elsewhere. The British government has sent a clear message to Putin's regime and to those who support him in his war against Ukraine. It is important to remember, Madame Deputy Speaker, that Russia produces only a fraction of the fuel products currently imported to the UK. In a competitive global market for oil and petroleum products, demand can be met by alternative sources of supply. Well, Jim Picard, thank you Hello. very much for joining us on the podcast as always. How significant was that announcement by Kwasi Kwarteng this week? So am I right in saying the UK doesn't depend on huge amounts of Russian oil for its energy, unlike the rest of Europe? Yeah, exactly. The reason the UK was able to move on this was because only a small proportion of uh, oil imports into the UK come from Russia. 
And just as you saw the US bans oil and gas imports, the UK said that it's going to phase them out by the end of the year. Now, it's kind of a sideshow to the big event, which is just the spiraling uh, increase in the cost of wholesale gas around the world. It's going to mean that household bills in the UK will have jumped from about £1,100 at the start of last year to over £3,000 by the end of this year. It's a tripling. It's an increase of about two grand per household. And that is an enormous political headache coming in the direction of Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. And I think there's a sort of political significance in this, this phasing out of Russian oil imports. But I think it's probably true when Kwasi Kwarteng says that they should be able to find alternative sources for that oil and gas. I think he's probably correct. Basically, Russia accounts for 8% of UK oil imports, and it varies for different types of products. So about 18% of diesel, 5% of jet fuel, but none of our petrol comes from Russia. I think that can probably adjust in a global market. The bigger question is, what on earth are they going to do about this general spike in gas prices? Well, Chris Giles, thank you very much for joining us from your travels across Europe at the moment. What is going to be the immediate and material impact of this announcement by the UK and the US about importing Russian oil? Is that going to have an immediate impact on energy prices? And also, what's that going to mean for inflation? Well, I think it means two things. One is it's almost certainly going to just marginally raise the price of oil further because if uh, the US and the UK are trying to source any oil they did buy from Russia from elsewhere, that will increase demand for other sorts of oil and raise the price. Now, it's not very much. The UK and the US don't buy a lot of oil from Russia, so I wouldn't have thought it's going to have too much of an impact. But what we're seeing is we're seeing also efforts from Europe to minimise their use of Russian oil And all of these things together are pushing up the price of oil, pushing up the price of other commodities. And that is raising inflation, making inflation even higher. So people are talking now about inflation rising to somewhere in the region of 10% by the autumn. And that's really a figure we haven't seen since the late 1980s, early 1990s. And if inflation does start to rise that level, Chris, that's obviously going to have a big impact on the whole economy, but also particularly on this question of fuel poverty. And the government's options are relatively limited about what they could do about this. Oh, yeah, it's it's just awful, particularly if you're on a low income, because fuel and gas and electricity are just a much higher proportion of your income than they are for people in the middle of the income distribution and people at the higher end of the income distribution. So what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of people being very cold in the coming winter, almost certainly. Not nearly as cold as the people in Ukraine, of course, but very cold compared with normal, and it's very expensive. And so we would expect the government, I think, to try and find some ways to mitigate the pain because we wouldn't want, uh, in some ways, I think the government would find it politically difficult for Vladimir Putin to have the victory of making people much worse off in this country if it's a question of just borrowing for a few months to get through the winter. Well, Jim, the response to this has been obviously this consideration about what the UK's response is going to be to ensure energy security. And there's been a whole political debate about the question about naughty oil and gas. Do we need to focus on ramping up production there? But also discussions about small-scale nuclear, which is a phrase Conservative MPs are happy to band around. But a lot of this stuff is quite long-term, particularly that small-scale nuclear. You're talking in good decades, at least before any of this could kind of come to fruition. So is there a 
plan within the Department for Business and within government to deal with this immediate problem now, as well as that sort of medium-term strategy that obviously ties in to the net zero question? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we're going to have is is on two fronts, and I think I think the thing to just just to really emphasise here is the spiralling prices aren't really being caused by us phasing out imports of Russian oil. I mean, as as Chris said, on the periphery that might push up the price a little bit, but this is a global situation with wholesale prices going through the roof. So we, we've got two elements of this that are happening. We've, we already had this rescue package in early February. Because bear in mind that prices of gas and oil were already going through the roof even before the invasion. So Rishi Sunak, the, the Chancellor, at the start of February, announced that he was giving a £200 loan to everyone in the country or every household, and then another £150 council tax rebate. So for 80% of households in the UK, they were getting 350 quid, although some of it was in the form of a loan. Now, he is going to have to go back to the drawing board with this, given, as I mentioned earlier, that prices for the average household are going up by something in the order of £1,700 in the course of about 18 months, they are going to have to reconstitute that offering to the, the general public. I don't think they're going to do it in time for the March budget. The, the signals I was getting from the Treasury on Thursday were that because prices are so volatile at the moment, then they're going to have to come back to this basically before the autumn, which is when the price cap, which governs most household bills, will move again at the behest of off-chain. So that's the first thing. And then the second one, so that's your question, is are they going to have another look at all these different types of energy? There is a new energy strategy being drawn up by Boris Johnson, being overseen by Downing Street with input from the Treasury and, and Bayes. As we speak, it's probably going to come out in the next week or so. I think we know the rough parameters of it. It's not an abandonment of net zero at all. It's both an increase in domestic sources of oil and gas to displace oil and gas from dodgy regimes overseas. And at the same time, it's also trying to accelerate renewables and trying to accelerate nuclear. But yeah, none of those things can you do at the drop of a hat. They're all very complicated and they all take time and you can't just suddenly switch on any of those sources of power. Well, Chris, one thing that Conservative MPs have been discussing and quite wound up about this week is green subsidies and the net zero target. And even before the Ukrainian situation impacted this, they were arguing that the government should get rid of these green subsidies and saying that they're adding to fuel bills and they're not focusing on the needs of the consumer. But it strikes me that's actually a bit of a misnomer. It's not actually where the debate is because the issue here is not the subsidies for green energy, it's the wholesale price of energy. Oh yeah, it's just completely, it's completely off topic right at the moment. If we want to have cheaper bills, ultimately, um, we want to have less reliance on imported fossil fuels and more reliance on the use of wind in particular in the UK, but also solar, hydrogen and other forms of renewable energy. So the green subsidies are largely historic. They were to build out wind farms that already exist. So we could take them into general taxation, but we can't get rid of them. And now um, wind, at least when the wind is blowing, is by far the cheapest energy source we have in the UK. Well, Chris, there is this question about what the government is going to do with the price cap, because as we know, in April, it's set to increase significantly, and that's going to exacerbate this issue of fuel prices. But it could be, it's obviously going to be reviewed again, and there's been predictions by some people in Whitehall it could double or go even higher still, particularly if the situation with Russia intensifies and it's further cut off from the international community. And the real question in that case is, what can the government do? What options does the Treasury have to try and alleviate fuel poverty? 
Well, it really has uh, just two options. It it has an option of trying to tax uh, our production in the North Sea with a windfall tax because people will be making some very large profits there. That's one thing, but that's nowhere near going to get you enough money and has also downsides about companies not wanting to invest afterwards. The other option is just it has to, it might want to borrow to try and tide people over. If it thinks this is a a short-term issue, then it's exactly the sort of thing that governments actually are there to borrow for. That's what we have governments for, because they have un- unlimited powers of borrowing. Uh, and I wouldn't be at all surprised if the government did a bit of both. But as Jim said, more likely in the autumn when things are a bit clearer than right now. And Jim, finally, um, as you mentioned, we've got the budget coming up in a couple of weeks' time. And I think the sense is this is not going to be a huge fiscal moment, not least because there is so much uncertainty. Do you think there could be anything that the Treasury does here to try and alleviate this situation? Or are they just going to wait and see what happens to that wholesale price and then hope that this big spike of inflation Chris was talking about isn't sustained and isn't permanent? So when you put it all together, I mean, as Chris says, you've got inflation heading towards 10%. You've got the effective cut in universal credit. You've got tax rises. You've got energy prices. You've potentially got food prices going up as well, given that Ukraine is the, the breadbasket of Europe. And in those circumstances, I wouldn't be surprised if the easiest thing for Rishi Sunak to do is to pause the increase in next national insurance to go ahead with it would be to invite political pain upon the Conservative Party. To stop it could be to avoid that pain. It doesn't get the government around the huge increase in energy bills, which is coming in the autumn. And I agree with Chris, they're going to need to pull out some big bazooka on this. And we've got this FT story talking about how the, the increase on bills is equivalent to £38 billion, is equivalent to a 6p rise in the basic rate of income tax at the end of this year. And therefore, if you do little things like cutting VAT on the fuel, you know, that's knocking off 5%, great. If you get rid of the environmental levies, they're only £153 against bills that are going to be £3,000. If you listen to Nigel Farage, you'd think these environmental levies are enormous. They used to be quite a big chunk of the total. They, they were 12% when energy bills were only around £1,000. As those energy bills have tripled, the environmental levies look relatively small. So you don't actually make a material difference to people's bills by getting rid of them. So you're left with options which involve basically taking roughly what they did in early February, which is handing out a load of cash, and then putting dynamite under that and going really big, because otherwise they're going to have a political backlash on their hands. At the moment, people are very sympathetic towards the plight of the Ukrainians. But at the end of the day, people are often motivated in their voting patterns by bread and butter issues, the cost of living, and Downing Street is very much aware of that. Well, Jim and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also like a positive review and a nice rating. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Josh Gaber Dion and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thanks for listening. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. 
As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.